If God is so good, then why are things such a mess? You guys ever asked that question before? Anybody asked you that question before? Like, like really, like if, if God is so good, we say God is good, and we open our Bibles, we sing songs about God being good, then why are things such a mess? You know, from here, you can get in your car, and you can drive a couple hours west, and you can see something beautiful like the maroon bells. Some people say the maroon bells is the most beautiful thing on the earth. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful picture. Just a, a few miles down the road. I've got a picture to show you, just if you haven't been there yet, just to, to see what it looks like. I mean, just gorgeous. Just a couple hours away. You can drive maybe 12 hours, and you can get to the Grand Canyon. And you can see these beautiful things, these things that are, are so good, good to look at and good to see. But the thing is, between here and there, you're driving by communities of people who are struggling, who are battling poverty. You'll see areas that were damaged by wildfires or maybe had a tornado or just difficult situations that have happened. You know, this week I got a little tired of the cold and I started to look up beach vacations just for fun, you know. And, and I got online and I was like, where is the most beautiful place to visit? And it turned out that there's this place in Vietnam called ha Long Bay. I might be mispronouncing that, but it's in, it's in Vietnam, and it's, to be said, really the most beautiful place in the world. And, and I just sat there for a moment, and I felt warmer. You guys, you know, it's like this a whole mental thing going on. And I thought, man, I want to go there and check that out. But it was interesting, and you know, we've got some friends that are uh, Vietnamese and or grew up in, in Vietnam, and we've got uh, our girls, a couple of their best friends are from Vietnam. And see, just down the road, though, from this is this. The slums in, in large, major cities. And we have this in America, too. But it just goes to show that we live in this beautiful place that God made good, but yet there's so much messiness around. See, why is that? Why is that the case? Because it, that kind of tugs at us. We, we recognize, like, God, if you're so good, then how can be, things be so messy? And it's a question that we need to ask, we need to learn to answer, because it's a question that has shaken a lot of people's faith over the centuries, and it's important that we understand how to find these answers, and when we have these challenges, we dig deep and you know, face our doubts and ask, why are things the way they are? Because if you're with us the past few weeks, we were in the book of, we're in the book of Genesis, diving into Genesis chapter 1, and we kept seeing over and over again God telling us how he created the world, and then he would say, and it was good. Like God created the earth, and he said, it's good. That God created the oceans, and he said, it's good. That God created animals and plants and you and me, mankind, and God said, it is good, it is good, and it is very good. But yet, you and I, we look back now, and we see that things are pretty messy. So we ask again, God, if it's good, then why is it so bad? Why do we have hurricanes and tornadoes? Why do we have floods? Why do we have wars, and why do people get sick, and why do we have cancer, and why do we have all these messy things in the world? And what I'm, I'm excited for us to do today is look in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, because we see God begin to unfold these answers for us. Because we have big questions to ask, but God gives us some pretty big answers, too, in Genesis chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. What I love about Genesis chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 is it captures life for us. Is God begins to answer those big questions and he begins to show us ourselves. Because you and I, we look at this world and we feel that tension, don't we? We read Genesis 1 and we say, God, you made it good and it's messy. 
And we try to make sense of this. We try to come up with answers. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust what he says about all these things? But I think before we get our answer, we have to, we have to, to, to get the picture that God wants us to see. See, in Genesis 3, God's going to give us our answer. But we can't get there yet. We've got to go to Genesis 2 first. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God gives us the picture of how things were created to be. And if we don't see how it was created to be, we'll never be able to see how the pieces are being put back together. It's like if you walk into a room full of Legos, but they're all scattered on the floor. How many of you guys built Legos as a kid? A lot. How many of you guys still build Legos as an adult? Look at those hands. People are looking at each other like, oh, yeah. But, you, said, you know, as a kid, you know, I'd get Legos or whatever, and my sister would purposely destroy them, and they'd be on the floor. And then you try to put them back together. You can never put them back together just right. But you try, and unless you have the box or the instructions, it's never going to look like it was meant to look. And so the same thing goes for you and me. You, you and me, we, we live in this world where we're, we're, we're kind of struggling to try to put it back together. We're asking all the big questions, right? Like, how do we solve racism? And how do we solve the problems of poverty? And how do we deal with all these issues that are going on? We're trying to put the Legos back together. But unless we look at Genesis 2, we'll never see the box of what it was originally meant to look like. And so that's why it's important that we slow down and we spend some time in Genesis 2 because it gets us ready for Genesis 3. So, if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. Open up Genesis chapter 2. We're five weeks in, and we're on the second page of the Bible. <laughs> we're making some good progress, for sure. Now, I want you to see something before I dive in, though, in Genesis 2. It's really cool. You see this shift. Now, for some reason, when they added chapters and verses to the Bible, they included Genesis 2, 1 through 3, in chapter 2, even though it belongs with the creation uh, story that God gives us in chapter 1. but So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, you get this beautiful creation story that God gives us. Seven days of creation. It's actually a poem. If you look at it in Hebrew, if you listen to the podcast this week, you see, um, podcast, check it out, uh, teaser, you, you, you'll see that there's this pattern of sevens that God gives us. And so in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, we see that God, in this poem of creation, tells us his name in verse 1, he says, verse 1, one, when God created the heavens and the earth, the name that God uses in Genesis 1, 1 is used 35 times, 7 times 5, 35 times throughout Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 2, 3, and it's the name Elohim. Say that with me, Elohim. Elohim. So this is a, a proper name of God. Elohim conveys this idea of God being all-powerful. The God's all, um, all, all powerful. The God is a creator God. So when you see Elohim, you think of big, big, beautiful creation, creating of 98 billion light years uh, of outer space. This is Elohim. And you see Elohim again 35 times. That's why you see so much repetition um, in that first chapter, because they're trying to convey this pattern of sevens, which means complete. But, but something interesting happens. When you get to chapter two, you see a shift. Chapter 2, verse 4, you see a shift. You go from poem to narrative. And the reason is that, that God is using Moses to fill in the details of what he tells us in, in, in Genesis 1. But God does something else in chapter 2, verse 4. He changes the way he refers to himself. Look with me if you have your Bibles. Genesis 2, verse 4. No, notice what God does here. In verse 4, he says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Did you catch that? There's a little additional word there. See, it went from God in, in chapter 1 to Lord God 
in chapter 2. Now, this is important. I want you guys to catch this because what God is doing is he's revealing something about himself, his character, and his nature to us. So I've got a little cheat sheet to, to show you here. Anytime you're, it's kind of a fun Old Testament Bible reading lesson also. Anytime you see the word Lord in capitals, just like we saw that Lord God, it's God's name, Yahweh. Say that with me, Yahweh. Yahweh. This is God's covenant name with his people. Anytime you see the word God, like we did in Genesis 1, it's Elohim. And then anytime you see Lord lowercase, it's Adonai. Say Adonai. Adonai. It's kind of a fun one to say. We can talk more about that one later because there's a lot to it. But... This idea of Yahweh, this is the name that God gives Moses at the burning bush. If you guys know the story in Genesis, Moses comes up to this bush that's on fire and he, and he hears God speak to him and he's like, well, God, what's your name? Who should I tell him is sending me to Egypt to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go? And God's like, tell him I am. He's like, huh? I am, I, you know, God's, I guess when you create the world, you can call yourself whatever you want, right? I am. And so Yahweh is the, the I am. But there's more than just God giving us his name. God is telling us something about himself. See, the the beautiful thing is Elohim is creative power. Yahweh means a God who engages, a God who pursues. He's a God who seeks, a God who cares, a God who's affectionate, a God who's warm. And by God telling us in Genesis 2, in the narrative of how he created mankind, how he created you and me, God is saying, I am a God who's personal and intimate, and I am pursuing you just like I gave life to Adam and to Eve. So don't miss that. When you read your Bible, notice how the name is written of God, name is written of God because it, goes, it conveys a lot about what the author is trying to tell us. So God is, changes his, he communicates a different name to us because he wants to communicate a really powerful truth as he gives us the picture of how the world was created to be. So, so notice, look with me. We're here in verse 5. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. Notice what he says here. It says, when no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And we immediately come to this and we have questions, don't we? We're like, hey, okay, God, so... Hold on, is that day, hmm, is that day four? Is that, is that, day, is that day three? Is that day six? Like, okay, we think it's day six. But, but again, God's trying to, he's trying to be the color analyst to the play-by-play, and he's trying to fill in the details of, of how he made the world and, and why he made the world or, and, and, and who made the world. He's answering all these particular questions for us. And right here he's saying, here's when I made man, and here's how I made him. See, in Genesis 1, we weren't asking the how questions. But in Genesis 2, God's giving us the answer to the how. See, see God can, can, can shift for us. And so in Genesis 2, he's given us this picture, and he's answering the big question. Because we always ask, why are we here? Who made us? How do we get here? And God's ask, answering that big question, and he's saying this, that I am the giver of life. And so this is one of the big things that God, I think, wants to take away from Genesis chapter 2, that, that we didn't get here on accident, or, or we didn't, we didn't um, get, get here by happenstance. God brought mankind. And so he, he says right here that God is the giver of life. For Christmas this year, my dad bought um, Emma, my oldest, uh, a little potter's wheel. Any of you guys ever done any pottery before? A couple of you guys? So he, he bought Emma this little kid potter's wheel, and I'm just like, man, it's going to make such a mess. Like, we gotta, we got to wait till the snow melts. We're going to do this in the grass. But, I mean, it is really beautiful, this idea that we can shape pottery in our hands like this. 
See, God is the potter is what he's saying. God takes things, and he takes a clump of clay, and he makes things beautiful. That's what he's done with you. That's what he's done with us. He's the potter. He is the creator. God is the giver of life. Notice, he's saying right here in verse 7 that he formed man from the dust of the ground. The Hebrew word for, for forms means carefully fashioned. Again, God's conveying it's not an accident. You're not here by random chance. You're here because God created you. That word formed, which means carefully fashioned, it's the same word that God uses in Psalm 139. And in 139, he says this. He says that, that for you, David saying, for you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearful and wonderful. You were not an accident. God made you on purpose for a reason and carefully fashioned you together. God is the creator. God is the giver of life. And God is intimately involved. He's the architect of life, intimately involved in creating you and every single person that you meet. But see, we also see in, in this text here that God doesn't, God doesn't create in monotone. He creates in technicolor. Have you ever looked at the eye? Here's kind of a creepy picture to make you feel weird. <laughs> it's like anytime you get close to an eye, it's beautiful, but it's yet mysterious, and it's just, it's just so hard to get our mind wrapped around the eye. I mean, the eye is one of just the marvels of science. If, if you look at some of the details of the eye, did you know that you can distinguish between 10 million different colors? 10 million. Your eye can tell 10 million different colors. Now, yes, some people are colorblind, but, but the average person, 10 million different colors. Your eye is more complex than your brain. My girls were asking me this week, hey, Dad, why can't we open our eyes when we sneeze? I was like, I don't know, but I'm glad we can't, right? I mean, it's like, it's like the, old, uh, you know, the old Looney Tune cartoons, right? Your eye can focus on 50 different objects every second. 50 different objects. It's crazy. And get this, your eye is made up of over 2 million working parts, and it's the fastest muscle in your body. That's intelligent design if I've ever seen it. God made that eye for you to see the beauty he has created and to teach you something about himself. How about your taste buds? Your taste buds, the average person has upward to 10,000 taste buds, and they replace each other every two weeks. That's why when you have a taste of hot coffee, you're going to be okay, right? It, it, you know, just put some sugar on it. Wasn't that a song? <laughs> so God creates all these beautiful things, eyes and, and taste buds, and, and uh, I'm sure Def Leppard was singing about hot coffee at the time, but all these beautiful things he creates for us as he's carefully fashioned us together. But see, God didn't just create these, these things for us to see and taste, but he also gave us these senses like laughter and tears. You know, you know laughter is one of the emotions that God has created for us to experience that, that helps control our brain levels. You know, when you laugh, it controls serotonin. And the, the more serotonin you get in your body, it can help battle the cortisol that you feel when you get fight or flight. We talked about that last week. And so when you laugh, you're actually flooded with serotonin. Laughter is an antidepressant that God has given you naturally. Laughter is so important. God has given us the ability to laugh. We should laugh every day. But God has also given us the ability to cry because as, as we cry, it, it works through some of those anxieties that we feel and, and, ha and have uh, a way to process those emotions. God has given you all of your senses for a reason. None of that's by accident. None of that's by happenstance. It's by intelligent design. God is the, the potter. And there's this really cool play on Hebrew words. If you look at here in verse 7, notice that again in verse 7. 
He talks about man being formed out of the dust. And the Hebrew word for ground is uh, Adama. Say that with me, Adama. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. Say that, Adam. So God formed the Adam from the Adama. So if you're looking for a baby name, Adam's a good one, but Dusty, Dusty's a great name too, or even Clay. Like, I think Clay's a good one. And actually, because we are formed from, from stardust, Frank Zappa was not that wrong by naming his daughter Moon Unit. As weird as that sounds. It's biblical, I'm just saying. But you, you, you get this picture that God is forming us from the dust of the ground. But notice this, verse 7 again. God didn't just form us from the dust in the ground. God breathed into his nostrils. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And notice, that's when he became a living creature. The breath of life was breathed. Don't miss this. In Genesis chapter 2, God is saying, I breathe life into mankind. I don't know if this happened today when you're standing out in the lobby chatting, but you ever, you ever like talking with somebody and you know, you're drinking coffee and you just get a little too close? Has that ever happened to you? And you get a little too close, you start to chat, and you start to feel like their coffee breath kind of on your face. And you're like, dude, you need a Tic Tac so bad right now. And then you see that little, little thing of spit, you know, and you, like, you watch it. Like, it's so nasty, right? It's so cringy. I don't understand it. But anyways, you get super close, you start to feel like their breath on your neck, and you're like, oh, it's super cringy. But it's different when your little toddler crawls up on your lap or your little granddaughter or, or niece or nephew, and they, I got a whisper for you, and you can't hear what they're saying because all it is is breath, right? Pa, 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 pa. But it's so good. You're like, here, tell me again. Tell me, tell me again. Like there's something beautiful when someone you love is right there whispering in your ear. Imagine Adam. God breathes life and breath into his nostrils, and Adam opens his eyes. And who's the first person Adam sees? God. When Emma was born, I remember I, she, she had just was born, and they took her over, and they're rubbing all the stuff off of her and cutting off the thing. And I, I come over, and, and I didn't care. I'm like, just whatever. I got the scrubs on. It's all good. So I just grab her, and I'm just like, I just, I open your eyes. Please open your eyes. I want you to see me. See your dad. Adam saw his dad. Isn't that so good? God breathed. Adam opened his eyes, and he saw his heavenly father. But right there, he was in front of me. He was in the presence of God together. It's, it's so beautiful. And so what God is telling us here in page two of the Bible is that I'm the one that spoke life into you. I created you. I love you. I know you intimately. And I want you to know me intimately too. Like God is telling all of that to us right here from the very beginning. And, and God is saying that, that you were once dust and I've formed you into life. It's, it's a little humbling, isn't it? That we were really just stardust before. It makes us realize we're not as awesome as we think we are, like without God breathing life into us. We were stardust. God brought life to us. And it reminds us that God is the one who brings dead things to life. There's this beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37. If you guys haven't read it, go check it out. Um, I can't tell you the whole story right now, but Ezekiel is a prophet of God, and God calls Ezekiel to this place called the Valley of, of Dry Bones. And Ezekiel's there, and there's all these bones that are just in this valley, and it's, everything's dead. And God says to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy. I want you to speak my word over them. Again, God's breath. Speak my word over them. And so uh, Ezekiel begins to, to speak, and he starts to hear this, like, this um, dry bones rattling. He starts to hear these, like, you know, these bones start to rattle a little bit. 
And, and then he starts to see like ligaments and things form. But yet these, uh, these bodies aren't just bones and ligaments at the time. And then God says, I want you to call out and speak. Let my breath, let my spirit, let my word fill each of these dry bones. And Ezekiel does. And all of a sudden an army stands up. God's breath breathes life and makes dead things alive. And that is such good news for us because God is the giver of life. So I think this might be what some of us need to hear today because maybe you came in here this morning and you're pretty down on where you are. You feel that life is pretty, uh, pretty black and white. You don't look around and see God's beauty anymore. You look around and you think this seemed pretty dull. Things seem pretty hard. And God is leaning in right now and he's saying, no matter what has happened in your life, I want you to know I created you. I love you. I am here for you. And I'm walking with you right now, no matter what it is that you're dealing with. And this is why this is so important, because God is telling us right now in page two of the Bible that he created us for intimacy. And he wants us to walk with him. And it's what we know we want, because it's what has been written on our hearts from the very beginning, from when God created Adam. And here's the, rea- the reality, I think, what God is telling us is that now that we live in a Genesis 3 world and we look back at this great picture, if we don't know Jesus, we can't have this life. We can't have the, the life to see the world in technicolor like God created us to see. And so if you're here today, you're tuning in online today, and you've never made the decision to put your faith in Jesus, I couldn't encourage you more right now. Call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to put you first in my life. Jesus, I'm saying yes to you because that life that you created me to live, I can never live it on my own. Breathe your breath into my life and save my soul. And the beautiful thing is God promises in his word that he will do it. When you call out to him and say, Jesus, I I say yes, become first in my life. God will do it. And he'll set you on the path for life where you can have the breath of God in you and through you every single day. It's what we were created to live, how we were created to live. So God is saying, I'm the giver of life. But also this, notice this, he takes Adam, he creates Adam, and then he gives Adam a home. Look here in verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And in the east, there he put the man whom he had formed. So we see that God isn't just the giver of life. We see that God gives us a place. That God gives us our place in the world. I love this picture, actually, that God gives us this place in the world. I mean, just think about this. Like, remember like, the first house you ever bought or maybe the first apartment you ever rented or, or the first dorm you ever went to? Remember how excited you were? Or, or maybe it was when you, you had your first kid and you brought him home and you got to go get the, the crib ready and you got to get the changing table and, you know, you need 75,000 newborn outfits and all of these things got to be perfectly placed. How excited were you? right? You're so excited. I'm going to get this wall hanging. I'm going to get this new couch and this rug. And then I'm going to, if you're like my wife, you're going to change it about every day for the next eight months. You're excited. Imagine how excited God was. He creates out of me. He puts him in a garden, right? He puts him in his home. God gives us this world as our home. He, He gives us our place in the world. And there's joy in this. God does this with Eden. Notice verse eight again. Notice what God says. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put Adam in that garden. Notice that the garden is planted in Eden. It's not the garden of Eden, right? It's the garden in Eden. So there's Eden, and then there's a garden, and God puts him in the garden. So it's the garden in Eden. Eden was a place, and God put him there. And it's a lot of fun to think about what Eden was like. 
But if you want to know what Eden was like, just imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been, right? Maybe it's Halong Bay in, in Vietnam, the most beautiful place you've ever been, but there's also always parking, right? <laughs> and there's a cafe au lait there, right? Making dolce de leche lattes. And there's barbecue trucks everywhere. It's like everything that you could get that's perfect is there. Like the, the, the Wi-Fi is great, right? I mean, everything is, 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 great, is perfect. This is Eden. But what's funny is the word Eden actually means delight. So God is saying, I created this garden of delight, of beauty for Adam and mankind to live in. Notice verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice the first thing he does. He creates things to be beautiful. God doesn't make ugly stuff. God makes beautiful stuff. First thing he does, he creates the garden. He fills it with trees, and they're beautiful to look at. Notice, too, though, they're good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God springs up these trees. They're beautiful, and they're good to eat. See, God could have just made it functional, right? God could have just made this place, and this is just good to eat, good food, but it's kind of dull, no, God makes beautiful things. God is the one that creates art and sunsets and beautiful jazz or punk rock, whatever your flavor is. But God creates beautiful things for us to enjoy. But then God creates things that are good for food. See, God, again, isn't just creating chicken and lettuce. I mean, God makes all of these beautiful things for us to eat and to enjoy. And praise God for his flavors that he's created. I don't know about you guys, but I'll go to Chick-fil-A, I order like 10 sauces, and then I go home, and I clear off the table, and I get my sauces all set up, and they're like in perfect order, because I'm kind of OCD, and then, you know, I'm like one dip here, and one dip here, and, and it's just ridiculous, it's like a 45-minute excursion, but it's beautiful, right? I mean, Chick-fil-A sauce is from heaven, right? I mean, can I get a second on that? God creates this beautiful assortment of flavors and delicious things for us to look like. It's like the jalapeno poppers at the 49th are just amazing, but don't go there because it's already too crowded. It's my place. You guys stay away. Ron can go too, though. But it's beautiful, right? Like God creates all these beautiful things for us to eat and for us to look at it. And again, some of us look at the world right now and things are just bland and they don't taste good and they're ugly. And God's saying, you're missing it. Look through the mess See the world from my lens. I created things to be beautiful. And God, I think, is telling us to stop and to look around and to see all the things that he created. Could you imagine? You guys know the scene in, in uh, Wizard of Oz when the, the house crashes right on the Wicked Witch of the East, I think it is. And then, um, you know, Pink Floyd starts playing, right? Boom, 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 boom. And then Dorothy opens the door and it's like, da na, right? And it's just all in color. Like, that's what God's saying. When you trust me, when you follow me, it's going from black and white to technicolor. So God is saying, slow down, stop, look, taste, breathe it in, because it's so good. And then, just, just super quick, verses 16 and 17, he says this. That he says that the, the, in the middle of the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And then in 16 and 17, God says this to Adam. He says, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you will surely die. And you're going to begin to see this theme of the tree of life and the, three, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil play out. And that's a teaser for two weeks from now when we get to Genesis 3. But this is a theme that's going to run all the way to Revelation 22. Genesis 2, Revelation 22. One theme that runs the whole way. 
trusting God. It's a beautiful picture, and we'll talk more next time. But in Genesis 2, God is showing us this picture of how he created the world and that he created it good, and he created it tasty, and he created it beautiful. And there's an implication here that I think we need to see. A lot of people say that, well, we are just renting space as humans in this world. That, you know, some people even say, you know, it'd be better for the animals, it'd be better for the plants if people weren't even here. But we look at Genesis 2, and God is saying that he created the world to be our home. And there's implications there. Now, the implication is that you and I, we need to take care of this place. That we need to take care of this world. That we need to take care of what God has created. But, but also, this world is, is our home. This is our place that God prepared for us. So let's enjoy it. And let's live in it well. And let's soak up its beauty. And let's visit beautiful places and eat delicious food as long as we can stay under 1,800 calories a day. <laughs> God has created all of this for us to, to take in. So I think God is saying, slow down. And take it in. How would your life look differently if you slowed down last week and took it in? So God created this world to be our home. But lastly, notice this. God gives us purpose in work. Look, look here. God gives us purpose in our work. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took man. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. See, God just didn't put Adam in the Garden of Eden to chase butterflies or to, to, to watch episodes of Jack Reacher or, or whatever play cards. He put him in the garden to work it. Now, some of us come into this thing and we're like, well, you know, we, we work to pay the bills, right? We work to have money to go skiing. We work to, to, to do these things. But God's saying, no, you work because that's what you were created to actually do. Like, you were created to do more than just pay the bills. Deep inside of you is a desire to work. And you know it's there. Let me ask you, if you didn't have to work, to pay the bills or to have money to go skiing or, or whatever. If you didn't have to work, what would you do? Because you get pretty tired of sitting at home. Like, like when you get stressed out, like when, when things get rough at home, where do you think about working? Because we all think about it. We might think about sitting on the beach for a little bit, but we all think about something we're going to do. Like for some of you guys, I'm like, I just want to go stack boxes, right? Like just go to Amazon and, and stack boxes. For other people, you, you, you may want to work at a guitar store. What is it for you? For me, it would be creating, you know, molding surfboards on the beaches in North Carolina. Like, when times get stressful, that's what I dream about. And I don't even know how to surf, but I, I want to do that because it sounds great. You were created to work. God is putting that desire on your heart to work. And, and when, when, we, when we live into that, it, it's when we can actually begin to experience the goodness that comes from work. Now, some people think work, work is a curse, right? Like, work must be a product of Genesis 3. But God's telling us in Genesis 2 that he created us to work. Jesus worked. Jesus was a craftsman. Jesus was a carpenter, probably a stonemason. God created us and gave us a desire on work to work. This is why when you go on a really long vacation, after about day seven, you're ready to come home because you want to get back to work. And some of it's because, you know, your email box is flooded. But for a lot of us, it's just that desire. We know we need to work. Now, we can take this the wrong way, though, and some of us can become workaholics. I was reading an article in the Harvard um, Business Review, and it was talking about this idea between uh, being a workaholic and just working a lot of hours. And believe it or not, being a workaholic doesn't mean you just work a lot of hours. Being a workaholic means that you have an unhealthy engagement to work that you can't switch it off. And in this, in this article, it talked about how people who work a lot of hours can, can be completely healthy, whereas people who are workaholics, 
deal with all kinds of issues, stress and high blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes and all these things. The difference is how you approach your work. See, if you look at work as something that you can't let go of and you find yourself at home always checking your email and responding to messages and unable to engage with your family, that's when you know you're a workaholic. But if you can learn to find passion in what you do, you may not do what you're passionate about, but you can find passion in what you do. You can learn to switch it off when you punch out. And then it doesn't matter how many hours you work. You can enjoy the work that God has called you to do. See, God has created us with the purpose of work. That's why in, in Proverbs 16.3, God says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. You were created to work. And it's what Paul says in, in Colossians 3.23. He says, Whatever you do, work heartily. That's for the Lord and not for men. Have your priorities when it comes to work, and you will find fulfillment in your work because you were created to work. And I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says, he says that work, and lots of it, is the indispensable component of a meaningful human life. It is a supreme gift from God and one of the main things that gives our life purpose. See, here's what God is saying in Genesis 2.15. From the very beginning, second page of the Bible, he says, for humanity to flourish and for you to be at your best, God created you, he gave you a place to live, and he gave you purpose in your work. And this is why we need to flourish as a society and as a community. We need Christian men and women, God-fearing people that love Jesus in the workplace this is why we need teachers and plumbers and electricians and car mechanics and salespeople and storytellers and everything in between. Because God has given us this desire to work. And when we do it well, we take care of this world and these people that God created for us. So let me ask you, how do you need to start looking at work to shift from seeing work as a burden to a blessing? Because God created it to be a blessing. So God gives us this picture, Genesis 2, of the way that things were meant to be. He gives us the Lego box. This is what it was supposed to look like. In, in 1945, it was the, uh, near the end of the, the uh, World War II, and there was a bunker in Berlin that caught fire, not once, but twice. And so when they went and they discovered this bunker and they put the fire out, they discovered in this bunker that the Nazi army had um, collected 1,600 paintings and sculptures from antiquity that had caught fire. And, and I just imagine like a curator would have looked at that and just been heartbroken. In, in that collection was um, a, the uh, sculpture of St. John the Baptist by Donatello. Now, some of you are like, wait, Donatello wasn't just a super uh, Ninja Turtle? No, he was also like a, you know, very famous sculptor many years ago, too. So they find this sculpture. Uh, this is the one that's been restored. They find the sculpture of St. John the Baptist. Then they found all these paintings that have been burned, and they found this Greek amphora pottery that was just in shambles. And, and, and I, I think you just imagine being, being an art curator, and you walk in, and you see all this stuff, and you realize, like, with great sadness, all this stuff has been lost. And I think you and I, when we look back at Genesis 2, like we, we, we see Genesis 3 world that we've been living in and we're like, man, everything's been broken and it's messy and it's shattered. And it leads us to a place where it makes us sad. We, we, we feel it deep inside of us that we long for something better. Like every single one of you knows this world should be better than it is. Like every single one of us deep inside of us has a longing for a better world, has a longing for a better place. Deep inside of us is, some, is this, this deep-seated desire for things to get better. And that's why when we work together, we feel this purpose that we're accomplishing something great. But we're still looking back through the brokenness of, of sin. 
after the war ended, they took all of these art, all these artworks, and they shipped, um, they shipped them, and they began to restore them. And by 2010, 750 of them were restored. Here's that pottery restored back to its original purpose. Beautiful. Yeah, you see the cracks, but it's still beautiful. See, the beautiful part of the good news of the gospel is the Bible tells us that Jesus came to fix what was broken, that Jesus came to restore what was messy and what was lost. And you are still going to see some cracks right now. But one day, we're going to be restored to the original creation, to what the beauty we were meant to see. Because God is the one, Jesus is the one that comes and restores what was lost and what was broken. Let me end with Revelation 22. I hinted at it earlier. This is the picture we get of when Jesus comes and restores it all. Remember, Jesus is in the restoration business. Then the angel of the Lord showed John the apostle the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, Jesus is in the restoration process. He's restoring things back to the way they were created to be. And God has invited you and me on that journey. And God has called us as people who are made in his image and given the purpose of work to help restore with Jesus in the lead. So how can we join Jesus in this mission? See, for some of us, I think it's putting our faith in Jesus for the first time and saying, Jesus, I, you've called me to something bigger and better and greater than anything I could ever do on my own. Jesus, I'm saying yes right now. For some of you, it could be that you've been a believer, but maybe you've kind of fallen away a little bit. You haven't really kind of lived into this calling that Jesus has given you in his time. Jesus is saying, come home. Come home and live the life I've created you to live. I put that breath in your lungs. I'm the one that gave you the ability to see 10 million colors. Come home. But I think for all of us, it's seeing that God has called us on the journey to be a part of that restoration process. And as we work together, we can begin to put this world back together as we wait for Jesus to redeem it all and restore paradise someday. So that's my challenge for us, to begin to see how we can join in on the mission Jesus has given us to help restore the world back the way it was originally created. It's gonna be a journey, but it's gonna be the journey of our lives. <laughs>